Well, it's been brilliant to be with you. And Steph is right. We, I've loved him ever since I first heard him speak on a platform and then got to know him. And I'm so thrilled by God bringing him to plant here and the way God's been using him tremendously. And I feel very strongly affectionate for not only him, but the churches that I was once part of, uh, the New Frontiers churches for about 14 or 15 years until my call to London 10 years ago next month. And um, I took over from Dr. Artie Kendall at Westminster Chapel right in central London, just a few hundred meters from um, Westminster, uh, from Buckingham Palace. And I got a letter from the Queen today. I wrote to her to send her... (laughs) That's right, of course. I wrote to her to congratulate her on a diamond jubilee. And um, I found in our archives a sermon by Martin Lloyd-Jones preached the Sunday straight after her beloved father died, King George VI. And this sermon is about him and then draws out the the character he had, and the need for good government and constitutional monarchy. So I sent it to the Queen as a memento of her father, and uh, she's written back, and I was so thrilled about that. Um, We love our nation. We love our capital. We're all here for purpose. Don't you agree with that? And I want to turn with you now to um, Mark 16. So while you're turning there, um, I'm going to just recommend some book titles which are on the table over there. These are recent books I've published over the last four or five years. Uh, The first one is, they're all to do with people who met God and discovered awesome and amazing facets of God's character and dealings with people. And these are models of what God wants to do with us. This is Jacob's encounter with the mysterious angel of the Lord at a brook on his way back to his enemy brother Esau, where he sends everyone ahead and all night He's wrestled by an angel who breaks his hip. What's all that about? Well, find out, because this is how God deals with stuff in our life, too. This is about Isaiah's call in the temple when he saw the Lord and his life and his nation would never be the same. How many of you know that we've got to see a God this big if we're going to do the big things that Isaiah could do for his nation? And then this, my latest one, Jonah. Well, C.S. Lewis once said, I think a bit tongue-in-cheek, but probably quite honestly, that he was often peeved with God because God was always saving people I don't like and saving them in ways I don't wholly approve of. Well, his patron saint could have been Jonah because Jonah was a little runt of a guy, I picture him, but with an even bigger, a littler heart. And when he was told to go east to total pagans in Assyria, he went west on a vacation to Tarshish in Spain. Now, it's okay, you can have your Spanish holidays, but you've got to have a passion for cities and the lost, the millions of lost that are in them. And Jonah was turned right around. And that's what God wants to do for his church right now. And this one, Weds Together, Word and Spirit, the theme of this conference, because I think one of the most beautiful gifts the Holy Spirit gives is the gift of prophecy. This book, Moving in the Prophetic, is not only a theological and biblical explanation of the gift of prophecy, how it works, how it comes to us, ways of receiving from God, ways of testing prophecy. It's also very practical for us to get moving in this gift, which I think is one of the most remarkable gifts the Holy Spirit brings. Word and Spirit come together, usually, in prophecy. And here is a book on preaching the Word. Some of you will know we ran a conference at Westminster Chapel, 
um, uh, some years back. It took two years to edit all the addresses, 52 of them. And here they are, and they've got some of the best Ephesians 4 ministries in this land. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. I said to the guest list of men I've known and admired for a long time who I invited to do this conference, don't take all your secrets with you to the grave. Pass them on to the next generation. So there's 52 addresses here on virtually every aspect of preaching and teaching God's Word that I could think of. And if you'll be amused at this, this book came out at £25. It's gone out of print now. And it's for sale. There's just a few left. Uh, this is for sale for £20 tonight. And last week, no, the week before last, my son went on eBay to see if he could get a copy of this. And it, there was one posted, and a woman was selling it for £750. <laughs> so it's worth buying to see if you can get a few hundred quid for it, isn't it? <laughs> if you do, split it with me. Right, let's turn to Mark 16. And this is a passage that um, you may have heard somebody preach on, but you know I've never heard anyone preach on it in all the 44 years I've been a Christian, except myself. And uh, you'll see why when I read from it. So Mark 16, in the New International Version, which I have here, It has a little bit of a bracket, and it says, The most reliable early manuscripts and other ancient witnesses do not have Mark 16, 9 to 20. And it's certainly true that a number of Greek manuscripts of this gospel don't have these verses. But the received text, this is the background of the um, King James Bible, the authorized version, and other uh, translations since then would include this, and the NIV includes it, for the sake of thoroughness, because the jury's still out, about this passage. And I'm going to give you some good reasons why I think it was probably disputed. So let's read from it, first of all. Because we're going to talk on the theme of Word and Spirit coming together. And I couldn't think of anywhere better than this section of Mark, right at the end. You'll notice verse 8 concludes the brief summary of the resurrection appearances of Jesus to Mary and the women, and then to some of the disciples... And it says, verse 8, Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb, and they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Now, a lot of modern scholars think that's where Mark ended his gospel. They said nothing to anyone, and they were afraid. It goes on, however, with this extra section. When Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had driven seven demons. And she went and told those who had been with him and who were mourning and weeping. And when they heard that Jesus was alive and that she had seen him, they didn't believe it. And afterwards, Jesus appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking in the country. That would have already rung a bell with some of you, if you know the end of the Gospels. And these returned and reported it to the rest. But they didn't believe them either. So later, Jesus appeared to the eleven as they were eating, and he rebuked them for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe those who had seen him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. 
And these signs will accompany those who believe in my name. They will drive out demons. They will speak in new tongues or languages. They will pick up snakes with their hands. And when they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them at all. And they will place their hands on sick people and they will get well. After the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven and he sat at the right hand of God. And then the disciples went out and preached everywhere. And the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs that accompanied it. Now, it doesn't take um, a rocket scientist to figure out that this is a passage that's essentially about the word and the Holy Spirit. And I think I want to introduce it in this way that The truth is always meant to go with the fire of the Holy Spirit. Fire and truth are partners that God has brought together. And you know, there's been, as my predecessor R.T. Kendall once said, a secret, silent divorce that has taken place between the Word and the Spirit in the body of Christ. And like in any divorce, my parents were divorced. Generally, the children get choice as to which parent they want to live with. Some will go off with dad and some will say with mum because they know mum better. But why should a kid have to make that kind of choice? And all over the nation and many parts of the world, there's been a divorce between the word and the spirit. There have been churches known for their preaching ministry and the loyalty to Scripture, and their ability to explain it carefully and in a scholarly manner. And there have been more charismatic Pentecostal churches that may not have neglected entirely the Word, but their focus in some of those congregations is almost entirely on the Holy Spirit. But they're separating what God has joined together. And what God has joined together, no man should pull asunder, should they? And so it means then that We don't have to choose here. God wants us to be loyal to and familiar with His Word. He wants us to be experiencing and encountering His Holy Spirit on on, on regular occasions and empowered with Him on a daily basis. Now, I read a book called Seven Men Who, Who Rule the World from the Grave. And this was a fascinating take on... Seven figures who have shaped the modern world for us. Karl Marx, Sigmund Freud, Friedrich Nietzsche, Charles Darwin, Soren Kierkegaard, the Danish philosopher, David Hume, the, the rationalist, naturalistic thinker in Scotland, and John Dewey, the 20th century educationalist. Seven men who still rule the world from the grave. But what I'm most thrilled about is that we... We are submitted to a man who rules the world from beyond the grave. It's Jesus, ascended high in the presence of his Father now. There is a man in glory tonight. He is the God-man. There's nothing he's not capable of. His plans are far extensive than any of us have dreamed of in this room. And he is fulfilling them. And everything is on target and on time. Now... The first time I ever spoke on these verses was back in 1984. For three years, I had been engaged in a series on Mark's gospel. 
and I come to the 90th sermon in that gospel. It was about a year in to the, a visitation of the Holy Spirit we had after one amazing Sunday where I preached on the church that made Jesus sick because I was sick of it myself. The church that had given us such a hard time, my wife and I, young pastor and wife in the ministry, we'd been there three years, we'd struggled intensely. And God laid on my heart a message from uh, Revelation 3 about the Laodicean church that was neither hot nor cold, and Jesus felt like vomiting about it. It was a watershed Sunday for our church. It brought about a repentance. The church gathered that night a quarrelsome, difficult, critical, animosity-filled church came back to repent. And the Holy Spirit fell for two and a half hours on that church. And there were people weeping buckets of tears about a history they were now ashamed of. And we never went back. It was an amazing turnabout in the life of that church. But even so, months into that experience, I was rather nervous to preach on this passage. Not least because I felt out of my depth, but not least because I didn't know what might happen as a result of preaching this. I knew there were still people who were skeptical about these issues. And so I was unaccountably nervous. And I've known others say the same thing about this passage. You see, the early church seems to have had trouble preserving this gospel intact. There's no doubt there are manuscript copies in extant that don't have these verses in them. And one theory that I think I'm fairly confidently right about is that someone has taken scissors to the end of the scrolls of Mark's gospel and cut these verses out. And there's only someone who would mastermind that, and that would be Satan himself. There's only one being on this, in this universe who would hate us to know the content of these verses, who would hate it with a vengeance, who would want us to have our fingers literally in our ears, if not, to never be exposed to the teaching of these verses. And that would be Satan himself. Because these verses are dangerous. Once we get them in our spirits and mix them with faith and believe this is God's will for us, it will radically change your life and behavior. It will radically change the way you minister to people and what your expectation is of the supernatural showing up when you do so. Ignore them and you'll go about your business as normal, thank you very much, and nothing much will happen. But who wants to be like that? And so you see, somebody definitely didn't like them. And I've also concluded that the liberals have played fast and loose with these verses, as they have with many other parts of the Bible. Liberals are those who don't sit under the authority of revealed scripture. They claim to be an authority over revealed scripture. And they claim to have the, the audacity to be able to tell us what we can and cannot believe as authentically true in the Bible. Some of them excise whole portions of the Bible, and this would be most certainly one of them. So maybe our Lord has a special blessing for us here tonight in this particular story. And I believe there are three common methods that Satan regularly uses to know the effectiveness of words like this. One is to steal them from us. Another is to stop us from ever hearing them. And this is the case with many pastors who have totally neglected these. 
Um, some of the commentaries that you'll read will give just a few sentences on these last verses. They don't even think they're worthy commenting on. But there's a commentator called James Edwards who has written now one of the pillar commentaries on this passage who defends their authenticity as part of Scripture. He argues that they are uh, by a different hand because they don't seem to have Mark's voice, but they would be entirely consistent with the gospel itself. Too many Christians, you see, are saying no, Lord, to things Christ is saying I want you to have. Do you know there is a very incompatible thing to put the word no and Lord in the same sentence, isn't it? You remember when the fisherman Peter was told to cast his net over the other side when he's fished all night? And this landlubber Jesus is telling experienced fishermen how to catch fish. No, Lord, we've fished all night. That is a big mistake to say no ever to the Lord. Big mistake. Nevertheless, at your will, he backed down, I'll do it. And the net was so full, they had to call other fisher fisher boats out to actually sustain that catch and bring it to shore. So you see, when we say, yes, Lord, you never know what's going to happen as a result of that. Instead of being alien, however, I believe these 12 verses round out the Gospel of Mark beautifully. And what they do is prevent an unnatural and puzzling ending at verse 8. You see, this is the 1st century AD, not the 20th century AD. This is not like an existential French novel <laughs> that ends leaving you hanging in the air or an art house film from the continent where you're just left in your seat saying, well, what, what happened next? And the credits are going up. This is not the style of Jesus giving us his word about his ministry and his will for us. I actually suspect it was Peter who wrote this appendix. Traditionally, Papias said, one of the early figures in the church in the second century AD, that Mark was a companion of Peter in Rome and wrote down his memoirs of Peter's preaching for the whole bulk of this gospel. It may well be that it was Peter who appended this gospel with these last words. They fit the narrative of the book of Acts in so many ways, and there's nothing in them that isn't inconsistent with the book of Acts. This is all part of the radical Christianity characteristic of the New Testament as a whole. And you know, when we use the word radical, let's be clear what we're talking about here. To be a radical Christian doesn't mean out with the old and in with the new. It means to be out with the old and in with the even older. Let's get back to first century Christianity, as Jesus founded it and inculcated it and imparted it to his apostles, that's radical. And that's why I'm saying this is one of the most radical passages in the whole of the New Testament. This is part then of what Jesus wants us to recover to this day. So these verses contain directions and promises concerning the Great Commission, which is, of course, our responsibility, like Jonah's to do whatever God tells us to, to win people who don't know him, have not trusted him, are in antipathy towards God, and very negative about the heart of God's love for them and his desire to save them. Local or national or international, every one of us is being re-enchanted with the gospel at this time 
for the sake of our neighborhood, our city, and our nation. Where there's nation clearly going down the tubes, and the only answer to it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so this is about our mission. And it has features in it that are very, very important for us to get a hold of. What it opens with, however, in verse 8 onwards, is the difficulties that the closest circle of Jesus' familiar disciples had in believing that he was alive after his crucifixion. After all, the first reporters were women. And in the rabbinical culture of the day, women were not allowed to act as witnesses in courtrooms, even if they had seen events and could report them. Why? Because a woman is a very emotional creature. And her senses are unreliable. She doesn't think clearly. And she can't articulate the truth accurately. Well, Jesus, thank God, didn't believe that about women. And therefore, among the earliest people who saw him alive were the women. And the women had testimony to what they had seen. And yet, what we can see here is that all of these disciples are honestly somewhat thick-headed and numbskulled. You can see it here as the text is honestly declaring. That's another proof of the truthfulness. The Bible is very honest. It portrays its heroes, warts and all. So when Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he'd driven seven demons. And she went and told those who'd been with him and who were mourning and weeping. And when they heard that Jesus was alive and that she'd seen him, they didn't believe it. What's going on here is that they were dominated by feelings rather than faith. And when our emotions are upset, it often plays a dreadful role in confusing our minds. We can't think straight when our emotions are disturbed. Furthermore, they refused the eyewitness testimony of these women. Perhaps because of the suspicion of the credibility of women that was dominant in their culture. And they became hardened to the testimony, even of the two from Emmaus that are mentioned in, in uh, verse 12. The two, clearly, are those who walked with Jesus on the road to Emmaus, had supper with him, and then suddenly realized who they were having supper with, and ran back to tell the disciples, we've seen the Lord, he's alive. So again, they were still struggling to listen to those testimonies. You know, we're often found in the same condition and worthy of similar rebuke from Jesus for our unbelief. The two things, actually, that he rebuked them for. One was translated here, their lack of faith. And the Greek word here is apistia. Well, pistis is faith. If you put an alpha in front of it, it negates it. It means literally no faith. He rebuked them for their no faith. Their non-faith. Or as it's translated here, their little faith. Little to non-existent faith. Gosh, that's embarrassing, isn't it? To be in a faithless condition. Have you ever prayed for something in faith and then been totally shocked that it happened? Well, you'll have many surprises. But the embarrassing thing is that we get surprises. If we're really in faith, we would have expected this and then celebrated the fact that it happened, not been shocked that God used us. So Jesus looks for faith. He's looking for faith in this room. And as a result of this conference, your faith needs to ex expand, become more sharp, 
powerful and effective. The parasites, however, of rationalism, that's the use of our mind, which we've been trained in since we were little kids, that it baffles our reason sometimes, the things we read in the Bible and the things God does. I'll tell you about some of those stories shortly. There are peer pressures that we face, as the disciples must have had. They were in a conspiracy of silence over their real moods and over their real thoughts. And so peer pressure in church life can make you embarrassed about things. Hence my nervousness the first time I ever preached on this in 1984. Sometimes it's mere traditionalism. We're, we, we're quite happy with churches it's run now. We don't want any shocks or surprises, anything that we can't quite manage. But you know, God is the God of the breakthrough and the breakout. And there are things that are going to happen for us that have to happen for us, that we've got to learn to get used to. In my book on Isaiah, A Radical Account of God, I tell stories you'll find hard to believe, but I can vouch for you, they did happen. I was there. And furthermore, we have this airhead vacancy or vacuum when it comes to really thinking these issues through. And so, no wonder Jesus rebukes this. I'm glad he does. I'm glad he gives us a good telling off every so often. We go to the woodshed with Jesus. And he makes sure we understand why he's upset with us. We're not aligned with his thinking or his will or the things he wants to do through us. The second thing he rebuked them for was not just their lack of faith, but their stubborn refusal to believe. And in a word, this was the Greek word sclerocardia. Well, of course, the component of that word cardia is the word we get cardiac from. It's to do with the heart, and sclero means hardened heart. It means that it's toughened over, it's thick-skinned, it's not responsive, it's not sensitive to the leading and prompting of Jesus or his Holy Spirit. You are slow to believe, he says. It carries the idea of being cauterized or desensitized. And the worst thing that can happen to churches and people is to become desensitized to the leadership of the Holy Spirit and the promptings of the Holy Spirit, which we're meant to obey. So we, beget, we get toughened up. We literally become thick-skinned. And even Jesus doesn't seem to be able to get through to us. Well, that's not quite true. But we do persistently persist in refusing to believe God. There is a remarkable series of articles that were published by... Um, editors after the great A.W. Tozer, the leader of the American Missionary Christian and Missionary Alliance in Chicago. These articles are worth their weight in gold, and many of them are still in print. But one is called Miracles Follow the Plow. And the analogy he is drawing is that as you've seen a field left without crops for years, the farmer is allowing, allowing it to lie fallow, and it overgrows with weeds and coarse grass. And the soil settles, maybe even dries up in heat, hot seasons. And it's very hard. It's difficult to plow. But he says, this happens to churches. We become fallow ground. There are no crops. There's no annual fruit any longer. This can go for, on for years. And then the Lord decides he's going to plow that, those lives and go through that church with a blade that will turn over that hard ground and expose it to the rains and the air and the blessing of God again. If you've never been in a church that's needed this, you're lucky. 
If you have and God did it, you will be amazed. You'll look back at what God did, as I was saying earlier, and they'll be among the most wonderful, glorious seasons of the whole of your Christian life. Miracles followed the plow. And this is what Toza said about this idea. But I'm concerned with the effect of this truth upon the local church and the individual. Look at the church where plentiful fruit was once the regular and expected thing. But from... But now there is little fruit, and the power of God seems to be in abeyance. What's the trouble? God has not changed. Nor has his purpose for that church changed in the slightest measure. No, the church itself has changed. A little self-examination will reveal that it and its members have become fallow. It has lived through the early travails and has come... Now to expect an easier way of life. We're coasting. It has lived to experience contentment. Contentment to carry on its painless program with enough money to pay the bills and a membership large enough to assure its future. Its members are now looking to that church for security rather than for guidance in the battle between good and evil. It has become a school instead of a barracks, and its members are students, not soldiers. They study the experience of others rather than seeking new experiences of their own. So one outcome of this weekend is surely this, God wants us to seek new experiences of his word and spirit of our own. But the disciples had refused to believe this present-day activity of God in the supernatural at this point in the narrative. They were ignoring the facts, as I said, as reported by the women in verse 11, and discounted the testimony of their fellow believers, like the two on the road to Emmaus who had seen him alive. And they were explaining away the personal appearances of Jesus to them. So no wonder the Lord told them off. And so the Lord stands before them now in all of his risen authority and power. And he claims to have a universal authority throughout all space. Because he's the cosmic Lord through whom the whole universe was created according to John 1 and Colossians 1. But he also professes to here to be Lord of all time because he's always with his people. It's just that we don't access him always in the way he makes himself available to us. So this should make a big difference to our potential here in this new millennium. Jesus is Lord and he's with us right now. He's with us in this building tonight. And there are two things that we can't assume we've already got right. And the two words for them here are these, the proclamation of his message, which is his word. And the second is its confirmation in spiritual dynamics that mean visible manifestations of the Holy Spirit's power in people's lives. So here is a message that's been entrusted to us that can be both seen as well as heard. Now, of course, you've probably listened to radio on a regular basis. I always listen to Radio 4 in the morning while I'm showering. And I can hear words, but I can't see a thing. Because there's no visual data coming to my mind. But you can watch a television and turn the volume down, and you can see images, but there's no words to explain what is going on. 
thank God that we have a gospel that can be both heard and seen. It can be an audio-visual demonstration for people. There is a school in the north of England, I think it's somewhere in the Derbyshire area, and it was built in the 18th and 19th century. An old stone building with a large 